Critics of telework often point to its limitations on collaboration. Video meetings have replaced the conference table for millions of teleworkers, but they can be annoying. We just heard from the vice mayor of the District of Columbia outline why the city wants federal employees to come back or have the government let go of some of its real estate. Joining me with another angle on the virtues of virtual meetings, the CEO of a company called Frameable, Adam Riggs. Mr. Riggs, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we should point out you have a little bit of federal experience in your background. You were an innovation fellow at the Treasury Department, correct? That's right. I worked at the Treasury Department for one year, and then I moved over to the State Department for two years. All right. Well, before we get into this, just briefly, what is frameable and how does it relate to this whole virtual meeting and space issue? Sure. So Frameable is a company that's committed to bringing all of the serendipity and efficiency and pleasure of in-person work to the distributed work experience. We define distributed work as being both work from home, but also really it's anytime colleagues are not physically with the people that they are communicating with or collaborating with. So two employees of the same company who are at different locations we can say that they're working in a distributed way because they're working hard to collaborate with with people that they're not physically with. And work from home is a version of that where the location's not controlled by the company, but the work is still unfolding there. Sure. Now, the popular platforms, Teams and so forth, have proven really invaluable, especially when people were forced to be remote because of the pandemic. And now that's kind of set in. So what has to be the next, I guess, piece of technology to enhance these types of platforms such that collaboration is improved and the user experience is improved with better sound, maybe better video. I mean, you know how some of these things sound. It's extremely fatiguing after a very short time. Absolutely. I think you use the magic words, user experience. You know, there was a time and it was a long time ago when live video boxes next to one another was a remarkable technical feat and it was worth talking about on its own. But those days are long behind us. And now what we really need is for the providers that large organizations rely on to really turn back to the user experience and to the, you know, the evolution of what it means for someone to use this technology, not just a few times a week when someone's on the road, you know, traveling for, for work and they need to, to phone in or video into a to a meeting, but really every day, this these products have not evolved enough in the last ten years. Certainly not in the last five years. They definitely have have proved invaluable for getting us through the pandemic challenges, and you know we're we're all better off because they were in place, and for the most part they held up well. But now that people have a different experience and a different expectation about the role of distributed work in in their lives, and now that. Uh, talent acquisition and talent retention really depends on flexibility, these products are going to have to evolve at a much faster rate. Because there are large screen situations and conference rooms where the cameras can follow you around and really good audio and audio fencing and so forth. Lots of technologies are coming in, but it hasn't led to somehow the sense that, gosh, the virtual workspace is great. I mean, should it be where everybody is visible all the time? And you just talk to someone as if they were sitting out there, but they're actually not sitting out there, but you can see them all the time. Is that, mm-hmm. what, you, is that what we're talking about? I don't think so. I, I think it's a slippery slope to embrace the technology for its own sake. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's very expensive to 
to put screens up all over a conference room and have uh, high definition cameras, you know, less expensive now than it was 10 years ago, but it's still an expensive proposition. It takes time. It takes requisitions. It takes, uh, you know, procurement. And unfortunately, if you take a further step toward, you know, virtual reality headsets and things like that, it just, it just doesn't really make sense. The problem to solve is how can we, you know, the question, the question is how can we, make it so people who are not physically together can collaborate in a natural way. A natural way means a full spectrum of scheduled to unscheduled interactions. Now, that does not mean you always need to be visible. It does not mean you always need to be on camera. It does not necessarily mean anything. It's it's a problem statement. And what the uh, providers of the technology need to do is focus on the problem statement and not on a specific solution like headsets or, you know, fully connected conference rooms that cost, you know, a ton of money to install and take years to install before they're operational. Focus on the problem statement of helping people collaborate in a natural way, even when they are not physically together. And that is what should drive the evolution of these products. We're speaking with Adam Riggs. He is CEO of Frameable and a one-time Presidential Innovation Fellow. It sounds like almost like a push-to-talk situation. You know, that's an interesting technology. That is something that, uh, you know, those of us who are old enough to remember the first versions of cell phones, you know, we got to play with that a little bit. I think there is something attractive about the on-demand nature of that, but there's a cultural piece there too. Sure. When you're in a physical office, you have an expectation or at least an awareness that people might approach you in an unscheduled moment to ask for your help or ask you to look at a piece of, you know, a piece of copy, a piece of a document, a design or something that was not on your calendar. When you're in a physical office with a bunch of other people, that is something that you know could happen at any time. It could be a colleague, it could be someone who works for you, or it could be your boss. So one of the most interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years is that people have evolved a, a very different sense of privacy and an expectation of privacy working remotely. I mean, they are in, if they are in their home, uh, this is a private space. And so the idea of being interrupted by a work colleague in your home is a bit disorienting. I mean, you are working, it is, it, is a, it is work hours and I am here at my desk doing work, but the idea that a work colleague could interrupt you during work hours, but in your home is, is, is a bit of a mixed, uh, it's, it's hard to process. So sure. I think that push to talk technology and things that make those kinds of interruptions a little bit easier mechanically, they need to be coupled with a deliberate discussion about the expectation that, hey, we're on a team, we're here doing this work together because it's not something we can do alone. And when we're physically together, we are committed to helping one another. And, you know, within reason, we are available to our colleagues to help them. And some part of that leaning into collaboration and and being helpful to colleagues, I think does have to move into the approach to work from home that people have. If they, if they insist on all of their interactions being scheduled and on their calendar, it's going to continue to feel disconnected. Sure. And that's the thing people, uh, people really have a hard time with, with remote work. 
because there are non-video options like Slack, which has gotten really popular, and I think Microsoft ended up owning that too, didn't they? And you can make video calls with Slack. They're not high grade, but you can also That's just right. text someone. So is that yeah. what you have in mind or is there some well, bigger picture? I, I have the sense you know what this looks like. <laughs> well, we, we have a version which is different from Slack. Slack was purchased by Salesforce, uh, not Microsoft recently. Slack is, you know, it started off as a, uh, a text chat client. There have been many, many generations of text chat clients in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, so it's not new. The video capability is new because they, they realized that people get tired of typing. You know, Slack uh, or any kind of chat system is very useful for supporting asynchronous communication between people who are not actually available at the same moment. It's, it's very uh, efficient, just like email. But at a certain point in that communication, a live interaction becomes the, the natural next step. So we think that text chat, video interactions that are live, your scheduled calendar and email all have to come together as kind of the four corners of digital communication infrastructure in a natural way. Part of the problem is that if you are a company that relies on different providers for these four cornerstones, you're going to have a hard time presenting an integrated experience to your employees. I'm not saying everything should always come from the same vendor. I'm just saying that um, whether it comes from the same vendor or not, the focus should be on the integrated experience uh, for the employee because the integrated experience that they have for themselves is what's going to begin to translate into natural interactions with their colleagues, if that makes sense. Sure. And if you can get all of this together then to get to our theme here, then is it possible that the federal government as a large entity, a large presence in, say, the District of Columbia or other cities too, but I think as a percentage, it's the most in D.C., maybe Baltimore yeah. also, yep. that they could just go ahead and proceed with permanent telework at the level that it is and greater choice, and it will seem more effective as a way to work. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think there are many ways to improve the, the toolkit that exists right now, and I think that doing so will help the C-suite in the private sector and the decision makers in the public sector understand that it's a false choice. The choice of either come back together in person or produce inferior work, this is not the choice. There is a way to produce excellent work at high velocity and keep the, you know, the esprit de corps up and the excitement up and the innovation up. But you have to look at the tools that you're providing your your team and your workforce, and you you have to be realistic about what's possible. So if the decision makers are not willing or able to take a fresh look at the tooling, then it's possible, and especially if they have a huge uh, real estate commitment, that the most logical thing that they can do is just insist that everybody come back to the real estate footprint that they've invested in. But if there is a commitment to right-sizing the real estate footprint, if there's a commitment to um, finding talent where it is and being flexible about people's balance of, you know, balance, the balance of time that they 
that they have. I mean, the 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 work the work from home statistics are pretty striking. At the moment, it's a little more than an hour a day. Something like seventy minutes a day, on average, is saved on a day where someone works from home versus when they work, uh, uh, including their commute. What they do with that time is pretty remarkable. About half that time saved, the time saved, about half that time goes to more work. And about the other half of that time goes to a mix of personal health, family obligations, you know, cooking, wellness, et cetera. So it can truly be a win-win for both the employer and the employee. If the hybrid schedule is enforced in the right way, if people, when they come into work, are coming in on the same day as the colleagues they need to connect with, and if the tooling that they are able to use when they are working from home is up to the task. Adam Riggs is CEO of Frameable and a one-time Presidential Innovation Fellow, serial entrepreneur. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you happen to be. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the 
property, a white woman would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? 
in 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.